Amen. Isaiah tonight, chapter 28, tedious teachings. I'm not talking about myself. It's tedious teachings with a question mark is the title for this evening's study. Direct prophecy and predictive prophecy taking place at the same time. And that is the habit of the prophets in the Old Testament. The direct prophecy is this is what you've done against God. Or it could be positive, and this is how the Lord's going to bless you because. But of course, in this case, it's going to be in the negative. That's the, the direct part. The predictive part is, here's what's going to happen in the future. And so Isaiah is foretelling the future, the events related to the present conditions. And this is the work of the prophet. Every prediction he made came true as far within the window of or everything before the last days, which we are leading up to in our lives. Uh, many of his prophecies, his future prophecies, came true in his own lifetime, but others did not. For instance, the coming of Messiah. He, he got it so accurate, that 53rd chapter of I, Isaiah. And so every prediction he made in relation to judgment did come to pass on the northern kingdom and on Judah, but there are so many other prophecies he made that unfolded as the centuries passed by and are still unfulfilled. Now he's going to return to the crisis at hand. Remember, he lived his whole life under the shadow of the Assyrian threat. In the last two or three chapters, we've been talking about uh, Isaiah's uh, look forward into the future kingdom of Messiah. Well, now he comes back to the times that he lives in in this 28th chapter where Israel's, the northern kingdom, rebelling against the Assyrian threat, they will be dealt with, they will be destroyed and assimilated amongst the Gentile peoples in that region. Uh, this would serve as a warning to Judah to get your act together, which they held it together pretty well for about 100 years, and then it all caved in. Chapters 28 through 35 focus on this very thing, the Assyrian threat. And uh, these uh, woes that come with it in chapter 28, 29, 30, and there are six of them. Uh, well, they are all focusing on Jerusalem and the consequences of disobedience. And what we're getting in this chapter is what the prophet had to put up with, just to tell the truth. We should all identify with that. It's, you know, what do, what do you have to put up when you tell the truth to someone who doesn't, who is not born again, or to someone who is in flagrant sin? blatant sin, and they don't want to hear it. You know, this is what the prophet had to do, to deal with the scoffs and the threats and the, the nasty looks. But he was unswerving in his loyalty, turning neither to the right or to the left, stayed right in his lane of truth, and faced those who fought him every step of the way. You would think, well, it's like someone who says that they are Christian and goes to church and... and Make no attempt to follow what the scriptures said. These are the people he had to live with. They were claiming Yahweh. They were claiming to be Jews. Well, they had their seances and uh, did all the other things that they committed. Now, incidentally, when the northern kingdom falls, the Assyrians take the, the surviving Jewish people out from the north and they disperse them throughout other conquered territories and Gentile lands. And then they bring some of those Gentiles from those conquered territories into what was once the northern kingdom. 
that make, that, then it becomes Samaria. And we read a lot about Samaria in the New Testament, uh, Jesus and his parable of Samaritan, because the Jews hated them. Uh, they looked down upon them. You say, well, who did they not hate? <laughs> and it's something we all have to watch. Well, we're looking at verse 1 now. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is fading, is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Though Ephraim's the northern kingdom, it was the larger of the tribes at some points. And uh, the Hebrew word, of course, woe, is not good. And so he starts out talking about, yeah, you, you, you know, you, you've built up a lot over the years. You've become a beautiful place. God has blessed you, even though you have mocked him. But you're going to lose it all. The Assyrian scourge is going to snatch it from you. He says, to those overcome by wine. Well, we have heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. This, these were alcoholics arrogant. They were, they were drunkards and they were arrogant. And the prophet is calling them out on it. The pride, the alcohol, formed a double trouble for the people living in this area. I mean, it would have been bad enough if their leaders were drunkards. But on top of being drunkards, they looked down on everybody else. They, they treated the, other, the lower class as though they were all servants and insignificant. And they abused them. And the prophets took note of these things. Especially Amos, who was, they tried to chase him out of the land. They got sick and tired of him daring to tell the truth about them. Isn't that funny? You catch a liar in a lie, he's offended. I mean, how does that work? I mean, you catch a thief stealing something and he's offended. It's just a madness that sin, what it, what it can do to us. How it clouds judgment and how it makes fools of human beings. So by themselves, again, uh, drunkenness is destructive enough uh, to those within its reach. And uh, the, you add to that this pride that made an archangel a devil and you really have a problem. And that's what the prophet starts out saying. He says, you had such potential, the northern kingdom. So beautiful, so verdant. Even to this day, you go to northern Israel, it's beautiful there. Uh, and uh, they threw it all away. And Ephraim, once so powerful, will now be on, have its head on the chopping block. And you look at America and the false religions that are running wild here in America. You find that uh, people are honoring what is false and trampling what is true. It's like they're committed to hating Christianity, uh, that which, without which there would have been no land of the free, home of the brave. But they bypass all that, trying to revise history, and we're looking at them, and you're, you're saying, how can God bless us in the face of the Chinese communists that are growing larger all the time? You have this insanity uh, of, of just, you know, the, the homosexuality, the false religions, this trans stuff. You say, how can God bless the land? What's the church supposed to do? I, I would like to see churches be more churches. Just buckle down and be churches. Uh, what a privilege, what an honor to just be able to preach God's word, to assemble, to sing songs to the Lord, to, you know, shake hands with your brothers and sisters once or twice a week, because that's about all we could take. <laughs> it's a joke. 
what a privilege. But what we have, new churches starting up, and it's the same thing as the other churches. There's nothing new. Why start a new one? Why not double down with the other guy? Anyway, this is weakening us. The Word of God is, you say, well, this verse by verse, this expository teaching, is it useful? Well, let's point to some times in history. Of course, in the book of Acts, it was very useful. Useful. There we read that the word of God was magnified and the church multiplied because of the simple preaching of the simplicity of the faith, the simple preaching of God's word, not going to God's house expecting something other than to hear from God, from his word, from those who he has, he, he has assigned the pulpit and those who have a word in season. And then we come to, let's say, the dark ages, the middle ages of Western civilization, where the word of God was hidden from the people, withheld from them. You'd get punished if you knew scripture. And when they found someone that uh, was trying to give scripture to the people, they would try. They often did kill them. I mean, they tried to get John Wycliffe, but he died before they could get to him. But they did get to William Tyndale. They burned him at the stake. Their hatred for God's word in the name of the church was so vehement that almost 80 years later, they dug his corpse up to drag it through the streets. They punish you for liking God's word. So we know what happens when God's word is gone from a society. You look at the history in Asia, the treatment of people in the Arabian world, wherever God's word was withheld or blacked out, People run amok. They become places you don't want to live. And so, as Christians, hopefully, we're going to fight and stand our ground and not turn to the left or right and learn our lessons from men like Isaiah, who had to deal with people who mocked Bible teaching. Uh, It's too tedious and doesn't apply to us, and who do you think you are? That's what he got. And he kept moving forward. And and so, of course, when you get to chapter 40, he just turns it on completely. So in a single paragraph, the prophet epitomizes the warnings that Amos gave to the people, this pleasure-loving, drink-sodden city of Samaria. Amos says, But you gave the Nazarite wine to drink and commanded the prophet, saying, Do not prophesy. You stumbled them. People who are trying to draw close to God, you did everything you could to stop them from doing that, to corrupt them. And then you told those who preached the scripture to shut up. Amos continues, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, (laughs) who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. That's all they wanted to do is get a high or worse. Again in Amos chapter 6. Who drink wine from bowls. <laughs> if, you could, if you could drink from a swimming pool, you would. You drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. In other words, you, you just trample on the lower classes. You don't have a middle class, because then you'd have opposition. And that's what we're trying to do, seeing this takeover attempt in America. Let's get rid of the middle class. We just have the upper People who know how to get elected and nothing else. And, and we'll have the poor dependent on us. So this is all Satan's work. We should be in tune to it and have a ready response. So I was speaking with someone. He says, at the rate this is going, we'll be speaking China in a year. It started out by me saying, Look, pray for our president. Because if anything happens to him, you know what's going to happen to us. Because who steps in his place? <laughs> 
Well, I thought you would be, yep, yep, yep. Okay, anyway, let's, let's do hand puppets now. It's true. I mean, if the vice president becomes president, we'll be speaking Chinese very quickly. And so my response when he said that was, well, then we'll be preaching in Chinese. I mean, we've got to have a ready response to whatever happens and not be so, you know, ready to wring our fingers and complain about the good old days, to stay focused on what the mission is in front of us. And the prophets, uh, they did just that. They had to live through watching their kingdoms fall apart while they preached. But they were righteous people who benefited from what they had to say, not only in their lifetime, but through the ages. Israel was supposed to be the land of milk and honey, and they turned it into the land of wine and money. And God is calling them out. He said, you're a bunch of drunkards who abuse people. You've taken all my blessings and ruined them. And uh, Assyria is, you're on Assyria's to-do list. And uh, Judah, you too. Because much of Judah suffered during this time. Just because Jerusalem was spared a hundred years, the rest of of Judah did not do so well. Verse 2, behold, the Lord, and he's going to come back to calling them drunkards. Behold, the Lord, verse 2, has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and destroying and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. Well, he's talking about the king of Assyria when he says a mighty and strong one. And this is from chapter 8 and verse 7. And so we don't have to guess about who he's talking about. He's, God is saying the Assyrian king is going to come and he's going to deal with you drunks. And, and, and not that God hates the drunkard, but these people... Uh, this they had nothing to do. Anything God came up with, they resisted. They felt it was their duty to disagree with God. And that's why the prophets suffered so much, as I read from Amos. Um, and the same with the arrogant people. Uh, you know, God didn't hate them. He gave them every opportunity to repent. We'll come back to that later. Verse 3, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. Yeah, because they were causing so much destruction in the lives of so many people. It wasn't like they were home harmless, not bothering anybody. They had political power. And they hurt people with it. Our God is a God of love, but he is also a God of wrath if provoked. And they were masters at provoking him by this time in their history. These are lessons for us, says the Apostle Paul, says the Lord Jesus. Do not be deceived, Paul wrote. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. You sow in hope to be righteous, to be like Christ, you will reap that in spite of your failures. But if you sow in evil and could care less about what Christ has to say, that you will reap also. It's judgment. John 3.19 and this is the condemnation, that the light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. Well, the Christian that struggles loves the light. That's why the struggle is going on. There'd be no struggle if he loved the dark. He wouldn't care. And that's Christ calling them out. He continues, the Lord does. John giving us these intense lessons. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the New Testament continues. It, it doesn't stop. It doesn't say, oh, you know what? The Old Testament was so harsh. 
It says, hey, let's, let's get this out in the open. Let's, let's make sure you understand what's taking place here. It is about faith, because without faith, you can't please God. It's not possible. Once exposed to his truths, you have a decision to make. Verse 4, and the glory, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up, while it's still in his hand. I, I think he's a little wordy here. <laughs> but he's, he's saying whatever blessings you enjoy, enjoy now you, it will abruptly stop. And when you look at the ruins of great civilization, you say at one time this was the happening place. Was, this was where people came. They, could, they, they would come from other lands to just be here. And now it's ruins. It didn't last. They were not righteous. The Roman Empire, the cities of, you know, the Grecian, Grecian cities, all of these things a subject to the authority of God. In verse 5, we'll take 5 and 6. In that day, Yahweh of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Verse 6, for the spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. <clears throat> now he just briefly shifts. It's sort of like someone saying, well, what about the righteous, Isaiah? What's going to happen to us? And, and he said, well, in the day of the Lord, I'm glancing forward, the prophet says, to the end times, when the Lord finally judges humanity and he becomes the judge who is not going to be arrogant or drunk. And then he, he says, those of you who persevered, those of you who plowed in righteousness to the honor of the Lord, will be honored by the Lord. That's us too. That doesn't stop with the generation Isaiah was preaching to. Well, Isaiah's generation that who, to whom he was preaching, his audience, ongoing. Here we are this evening, part of the audience of what he had to say. These things did not originate with him. They came through him from God. And so this contrast to the crown of pride in verses 1 and 3, the arrogant, a crown of glory, a diadem of beauty here in verse 5. For that remnant, that, that surviving minority that believed in the Lord in spite of what was going on around them. It says here in verse 6, For the spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength. The earth, the earth mourns for the spirit of justice. There's this injustice everywhere. And the most intelligent beings are the most guilty because it's not instinct instinct that causes them to be evil. It's sin. It's choice. And in the millennial kingdom, it won't be tolerated. So today, suppose you're a policeman and you, your partner is a crooked cop and you're watching him stealing drugs and money from drug dealers. You're afraid to blow the whistle on him because your colleagues might turn on you. And should things get uh, nasty out there in the streets, uh, maybe they'll shoot you in the back by mistake. And so you have to, you know, you get, you're stuck. Well, in the millennial kingdom, it will be the other way around. You do something dirty, you will be called out instantly. It will not be tolerated, largely because we will be in government positions, in our glorified bodies. We'll not be subject to temptation and sin anymore. Uh, we won't be frightened to, uh, to, to withhold what we say, what we feel. Today, if you go in the workplace, you say, I think it's crazy what you people are doing. You're fired. Well, 
that won't it would be the other way around. If you come out and say something crazy, you're going to have trouble. Revelation 2, Jesus speaking, he says, he sh- speaking of his people that stick with him, he shall rule them. His, his people will be deputized. This belongs to Christ. He shall rule with a rod of iron. And then he extends it to those that are ministering with him in the millennial kingdom. And he says, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. There's no tolerance. In verse 10 of Revelation 5, this is the second time it's said, said in Revelation. It's said elsewhere in Scripture. That he has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. And in that reign, in that position of authority, there'll be no corruption. There'll be no taking bribes. Again, someone uh, goes to cover up a crime or a sin, it'd be dealt with right away. So it'd be a radical, a rude awakening for anybody who has nefarious intentions. It will not be like it is today. For that, Jesus would say, let's just keep going the way we are. It's not going to go on. Things will not be as they are. Thank you, Lord. Uh, he says, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Evil, evil makes it all the way up to the gates. It's a serious force. I think we do well to remember when we're dealing with sin in our lives and those around us that when we say it is war, spiritual war, it is every bit spiritual war. We might not see limbs flying off of people and people zipped up in body bags, but we see people become apostates and backsliders. We see troubles in homes. We see what sin does. It is very serious business. And, uh, you know, I I find the older I get, except when I'm in the pulpit, the more quiet I become. I spend a lot of time talking to God, but um, he doesn't talk back so much. (laughs) I'm telling you that, so in case you, you have... He does talk. But he's done a chatterbox, and aren't we glad? Well, anyway, uh, those giving resistance to evil, uh, they're the ones that God will honor. And when Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, that's what he's talking about. You're resisting the evil. You're doing something about it. You're not joining them. Um, So, verse, uh, and the light of the world. It's not enough to resist. That's just defense. The offense is you're shining the light, the very light that the world wants to snuff out, the very light that many Christians have died shining. Verse 7, but they also have erred through wine, so you go back to that, and through intoxicating drink, uh, and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. He's just warming up on this this group. Now he's dealing with the clergy. He's dealing with the pastors. The priests and the prophets were to shepherd the people, spiritually. And, uh, of course, not only were they failing, they they, they couldn't care. All they were interested in was themselves. And I'm sure whatever monies they gain from the contributions of the people, they drink it. So verses 7 through 13, uh, the prophet now reveals how the message was received. When he said, you, you know, you're the drunkards, you're the arrogant. Now he's going to tell us, and this is what they, they said in return to me. Uh, so he, he, This is such a vivid picture uh, that uh, you have to, th- you think that, well, maybe Isaiah went, you know, actually 
saw these things that he's about to say and dealt with it. And I believe that is the case. Unhallowed, carousing with the wicked, uh, the priest and the prophet alike, overcome by strong drink. And then their taunting of the prophet is recording when, recorded when, when he says, Isaiah repeating them, who's he going to teach? Who does he think he is to teach us? And uh, his response will be, you're going to find out. You're going to be the one. Wait till the Syrian gets his hands on you. The priest and the prophet, it says here in verse 7, have erred through intoxicating drink. Well, how can one function in ministry as if, you know, they're inebriated? If, uh, you know, their judgment is now off, how can you trust what they're going to say when they're giving you advice or scripture? Do you, are they sober-minded or not? Where's the integrity? And you have to work to guard these things. And again, we're not, I'm not bashing people who struggle with these things. I'm bashing those who are guilty and don't struggle. And I'm not doing it. The scripture does that. And that's true for, for all the sins. Uh, you, you know, if, you, if you're a thief and you don't like being told that God condemns the thief, uh, then it's on you. It doesn't not in a mean spirit about it. Just these are the cold facts. Maybe no one ever, no, maybe no one told you these things. I know this audience, you have heard it, but maybe you will encounter those who need to hear it from someone else. Anyway, alcohol clouded the judgment, and that can't be good for anybody, especially when it's clouding the judgment of people in authority. Uh, would you want the guy who fixes your brakes to be under the influence of some substance? Uh, I would rather not. Uh, anyway, a judge has a lot of power to decide the future of people. And these prophets and these priests, they were pretty much, you know, they had that authority. They, they were like judges. They could great influence. And, uh, well, you know, you got to say, it's, it's probably even worse when you have sober judges that are unrighteous because they can't sober up and become <laughs> clear thinkers. They're like that all the time. Anyway... They are swallowed up by wine. He says they are out of the way through intoxicating drink. And he's a wordplay here. He's, this is, he's just a very funny guy, and he's a very clever and intelligent man. He says you're swallowed up by the wine. You swallowed the wine, then the wine swallowed you. That's what he's, he's saying. First the man takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. Uh, it's better to not have that first drink. Uh, I, I would say that about any substance that's going to uh, muddle the thinking, the, uh, but though it's again, it's it's not a sin, but it, it um, it's dangerous stuff. Um, how do you know if you can handle it or not until maybe it's too late? Anyway, they err in vision, they stumble in judgment. Uh, those entrusted with guiding the people are making these calls. So you get somebody in a pulpit preaching heresy, and people listening to them, not challenging them. Uh, the the the, uh, the meaning one of the meanings of a cult is that they're brainless. They're brainless followers of their cult leader. They're not brainless in making trouble elsewhere, but they just follow their leader, whatever he says. Uh, look what it got the uh, Branch Davidians under David Koresh, for example, or 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 the I think it was the Millerites who believed the end was coming, sold everything that they had, and the end didn't come. And they, financially, it was an end for them. There have been many of these over throughout history. Anyway, themselves misguided. The blind lead the blind. 
the priests and the prophets were supposed to be a righteous influence. But now Isaiah says they're staggering drunk around the city, comfortable with the tables of filth that they put themselves around. They're comfortable with the puke. That's what he says. Look at verse 8. For all the tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. I don't ever tell me I'm a hard preacher. <laughs> you're just complimenting me. And I guess, of course, if you're being malicious, it's just, that's different, malicious intent. But when any of you are dealing with the truth and the guilty are around you or the suffering, you know, there's going to be fallout, but it's not maliciously intended. I mean, it's, no, this is, the dealing with the curse is, is not a plaything. Anyway, again, it sounds as though the way he writes this is that he's had encounters with these religious drunkards. And whenever that word, it's one of many other words, there are other words, the same thing. But when that word vomit shows up, it demands attention. I mean, you just don't dismiss it. If you, you know, if you come to someone and or you say, I think I just vomited. They're like, huh? So we, okay. you might not want to hear it, but it's too late. This is what we have in front of us. And one of the things this means about this word that cannot be ignored is that everything that comes out of these drunken, uh, arrogant priests and prophets, these pastors, everything that comes out of them is equivalent to vomit. That's the point he wants to make. He makes it, and he makes it in front of everybody. When his congregation heard it, I'm sure they said, amen. We know he had students that referred to disciples in earlier chapters. Chapters. They're going to mock. He must have had, Isaiah must have taught uh, different levels, age levels, because they're going to say, who is he thinking, talking to one of his children now? Uh, not children, uh, as in students. When he says, no place is clean, it's comprehensive failure due to men siding against God. And it is frustrating that most of the people in the church embrace this, and the people we have to go rub elbows with do not. But that's our mission. Uh, anyway, even the priest and the prophet have become compromised by depravity, uh, just the, the worst, the lowest level of human behavior. Verse 9, Whom will he teach knowledge, and whom will he make to understand the message. Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breast. So now he, he gives the taunt. He's writing for us the taunt that he's receiving. The, the pronoun he, that's him, Isaiah. And they're saying, who's Isaiah going to teach? He has an ominous reply for them in verse 13 when he says, wait till the Assyrians get their hands on you. And you find out if you understand the teachings then. Uh, so he, and later he's going to fling their own words back at them. Uh, anyway, at, at in Judah there were scornful people. These are in the northern kingdom. They're, they're scornful drunks. Uh, the, the, the Judean scorners, they, don't, they seem to be sober. They're still, still falling far beneath what they should have been. And so they're saying to the prophet that uh, we're not kids. And you don't talk to us this way. Precept upon precept. We'll open that in a second. All right, well, I guess the second is here. Verse 10. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little. There a little. Now, I've got to say right away that uh, this verse is often quoted out of context. 
It's not God saying precept upon precept. Here it's not saying that. Although that is what God does teach. Jesus said, not a jot or a tittle will pass away. I think that's precept upon precept. Moses, we read this of Moses in Hebrews. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with the water, the scarlet, the wool, the hyssop, the sprinkled, and sprinkled the blood, uh, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So there in Hebrews, Paul is saying, Moses paid attention to the precepts, the expository teaching, the verse by verse, and he itemized all these things that we would otherwise would be bored with. My point is, the Bible does teach precept upon precept. Where the misquoting comes in is people are often quoting this, not realizing that they were taunting the prophet when they used these words. So a precept is a command. It is a rule, and it is a principle. And there's subtle differences. Uh, a principle is a lifestyle. You go by that that fence, you fence yourself with that principle around you, integrity. So, but a, a precept may not be in a command in this sense, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, that's not a commandment. But, but, it is built, it is founded on the first commandment. Because without that first commandment, you shall have no other gods for me. There's nothing to God so loved the world. Well, what God? I, you can have any God. So these little subtle differences are the things that the prophet would teach on. Maybe not on this particular one, but oh, certainly not on John three sixteen yet. But he, he would just he, they, they would teach like this, and uh, they they didn't want it. Uh, they they just wanted their next drink and the power that they that they held over the people, and so um, they accused him also of repeating himself. And that's why it's repetitive, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Well, why don't you just say it once? It's kind of tough hearing a person repeat themselves unnecessarily sometimes. Not, not when pastors do it. <laughs> of course not. Anyway, uh, they're rejecting his style of ministry and uh, refusing to take him seriously. That he was to teach children. That's why he, they make the reference to those who were just weaned. It's idiomatic in the Hebrew. I'm told by those who study the language that is a little jingle to this. And uh, the, the end result is blah, blah, gar, gar. But it, it, the words precept, that's what the, it is in the Hebrew. But it's, it's the idea behind what is being said. Monosyllables, because, you know, we're not little children, Isaiah talking to us like, you know, in baby talk. All of that is baked into the Hebrew, and it gives us a picture into who these men were, the smart Alex that they were, uh, mocking. Isaiah's going to mock them back. He's going to, don't mess with him. He's too smarter than all of them. And, uh, and, and not bashful about it, you know. Paul, when Paul dealt with the Corinthians, he put on kid gloves. He really did. Especially when he tells them about tongues. We may come to some of that. He's just very gentle with them. Isaiah's not going to be gentle with these guys. Uh, but there's a word play, a poetic word play that he is using here. He's mocking. In this speech, he's sort of sounding like a drunkard because they accused him, uh, you know, of well, because they, they were drunkards. It's baby talk that Jab they took at him in verse 9. Who are you going to teach? 
And then he's also baking into this intelligible language coming from the Assyrian conquerors. So verse 11, he says, with, For which stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people. Yeah, that's the Assyrian foreign language that he's talking about. If you can't understand my Hebrew, try understanding the Assyrian Akkadian language. That's where this is going. Make nonsense of God's sense, and you will find yourself in a place where you don't understand the things you must understand or suffer, and which is the, ultimately in the judgment, where this chapter ends. This chapter ends with the judgment to come. And soon these people in the north will be deported to foreign lands, and they will be forced to hear the babble of the foreigners' tongues, along with the... Uh, the false and seductive religions that they will be subjected to, the gibberish of lies about God. So when Rabshakeh comes, uh, that the general of the Assyrians, he gets to the gates of Jerusalem. We get this uh, in the latter chapters of Isaiah. Uh, when he gets there, he's speaking in the Hebrew. And the representatives of King Hezekiah ask him not to speak in the Hebrew because they don't want the people on the walls to hear what the conversation is and become frightened. And, of course, Reb Shekhar, obnoxious as he is, he just doubles down and says it louder. But the idea is that they spoke Reb Shekhar's language. The people did not. Well, when the people of the north are taken captive, they're not going to understand the Assyrian language. And that's what Isaiah is saying. You're going to be conquered. And because you wouldn't understand the plain truth of the prophets, you, you'll just get what you want. You won't understand the plain truth of those who conquer you either. Now, when you get to Corinthians 14, Paul quotes this verse from Isaiah. And he's, he's not saying, he's saying to the Corinthians, he's saying, Corinthians, Isaiah is not applauding, applauding that which is unintelligible. When Isaiah used these words that I'm quoting to you, he was saying to a people who were against God, that they were going to be judged. And uh, so he's, he's, saying, he's saying to the Corinthians, understanding is critical as Christians. You're not to come to church and start speaking in tongues and nobody knows what you're saying and then say this is a blessing. And don't hide behind Isaiah's verse saying, well, God's going to speak in this language. No, he's not. He's not out trying to confuse people. He wants his people to understand. And you're going to redirect the blessing of tongues into something it never was meant to be. And so, uh, Paul in Corinthians, I, I guess I should just take that. Well, let's just take verse 15 where Paul says to them, What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit. And I will also pray with understanding. And that's it right there. They weren't doing that in Corinth, many of them. He says, I will sing with the Spirit. I will also sing with the understanding. And so you had this madhouse, this element in that church that was just emotional and bringing a lot of pagan stuff in and just and Paul's trying to get a hold on it. And then when he finally gets to this, he says in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 14, you know, why is this complicated? Well, because people have complicated the whole thing of tongues. Tongues are like 0.002% of your Bible and like 20% of the problem many times. He says, in the Lord is written, 
when men of other tongues and other lips, uh, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. And so when Paul quotes that, he is saying, God is not applauding uh, ignorance. He's condemning it. And when Isaiah told that to the people, it was because they were mocking what God had to say. Don't use Isaiah to try to defend unintelligible tongues. That's what he was saying to them. So uh, I hope that clears some of it up to you. Uh, this uh, uh, the Bible is not condemning this one speaking in tongues. It is condemning uh, one speaking in a way that nobody knows what they're saying and then acting like, well, see, that was God. No, that's not. Uh, it's not... Uh, it offends a lot of people to hear that. They they want to be, <laughs> they want to speak unintelligent. I, I attended a church that when someone would stand up and speak in tongues, I would go like that. But anyway, uh, again, I got to remember, Wednesday crowd is tough. You're working all day, just not. Anyway, uh, and sometimes no one would stand up to give the interpretation. But their doctrine was that you can only speak in tongues if there's an interpreter. So the pastor would do it. And I just like, wait a minute, that's not right. You're waiting for someone to give the interpretation. When no one does, you just magically have it. You say, well, maybe he had the gift. Well, either way, you're interrupting what he was teaching anyway. So you have two problems there. And then he would give the interpretation, and it would be like, that was the same thing he said last week. <laughs> it was a mess, I, I thought. Anyway, coming back to this, uh, chapter, verse 12, and... Again, if you point it out to people, it's so ingrained. It's become a sacred cow in many circles in Christianity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Because we understand it. That's why. Verse 12. To whom he said, this is the rest of with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet you would not hear. Verse 13, but the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. And so the prophet says, yeah, oh, here's your own words back at you. And oh, by the way, here's the conclusion. You're falling backwards. You're going to be ensnared. God tried to reach you. He tried to refresh you with truth. But you couldn't be bothered. The Bible stuff was just tedious teaching to you. It's so boring. And that's what Isaiah is doing. When Peter, he and John go into the temple in Acts chapter 3, and the man is begging for money, which is understandable. Uh, and Peter says, I don't have any money. Silver and gold have I none, such as I have, give I thee. And in the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. And the man was cured. And then Peter drew a crowd. And this is what he said to them. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Well, that's what Isaiah is saying here in verse 12. This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Uh, the prophets, they, uh, they knew what they were doing. Verse 14, Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh, says Isaiah speaking again, You scornful men who rule 
this people who are in Jerusalem. So now he's turned his attention to Judah. He's dealt with the north. He's saying, don't go thinking you're all high and mighty. And he's warning those who are scornful of the message that he preaches, just like the ones in the north. Uh, He says, your foreign policies have failed because they factor out God. That's why. This is God's city. It's his land. You're his people. He owns it. The fact that you want nothing to do with him does not mean he has no power or rights over you. It's not like, God, we don't believe in you. Okay, so he stops existing. Uh, No, that's that's not how it works. In verse 15, (laughs) here's I heard someone say uh, to an an atheist, says, well, I never saw God, so I don't believe in him. And the comeback was, well, I never saw an employee at Home Depot, (laughs) but I believe that they're there. Okay, Wednesday crowd, Rick, Wednesday. All right, come back to this. Verse 15, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and Sheol, we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. The sarcasm continues, and rightfully so. He's characterizing the alliance Judah made with uh, well, sought to make with Egypt to protect them from Assyria. And it was a deal of death. That's what he's saying. It's not going to work. And again, when Rebshekah comes to the gates of Jerusalem, well, what happened to the rest of Judah? Well, they already enslaved them. So they were trusting in their power politics and not Yahweh. They were also trusting in the underworld, thus the double, the covenant with death and Sheol, the underworld, the afterlife world, the spiritual realm. Uh, They were having their seances. They were calling on their fake gods. Isaiah 8, he says, And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their gods? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? They were doing these. They were pulling these kinds of stunts. Egypt's military could not... Eventually, the Assyrians took Egypt, too. And Isaiah says... If you were honest with yourselves, then you would say we made a bad deal by turning our back on God and trying to do it in our own genius. Uh, But uh, they won't. And so when God says, uh, continues, he does here in verse 15, when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come near us. Well, that scourge is God using Assyria, and with this false security, uh, they said, we're, we're good. We, we, we got it covered. We, we've got, you know, our envoy, envoys up in Egypt. They're, we're going to be, Syria's going to hear that. They're not going to want to tangle with us. And, uh, of course, it was all false. They were impressed with their foreign policy, but <laughs> no one told Assyria how impressive it was. For we have made lies our refuge. So God's estimate of their hope is put into their mouths. He's saying, this is what you're doing. They're not actually standing up and saying, we have made lies out They wouldn't admit that they were lying to themselves. So God says, well, I'm going to admit it for you through my prophet. I'm going to tell you what you're doing. You're hiding behind lies, and you feel very safe there. It's like getting under the blanket, and the boogeyman can't catch you. I mean, it's just willful, willfully delusional. This is what they were. And uh, this is the outcome of being argumentative with God. This is the outcome of being defiant and dishonest with him. 
Willfully, they've become delusional. He continues, and under falsehood, we have hidden ourselves. And so again, the prophet admits for them, since they refused to, they lost their ability to identify truth. They lost their ability to tell the truth. They lost their ability to like the truth. And uh, they pay twice. The sinner pays twice. They pay in this life, and they pay in the next. Verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. So he sort of like perks up when he gets to this revelation. God's speaking to his heart. Of course, this is in contrast to the drunkards and the dishonest and these uh, just apostates to their leadership. There stands Messiah, contrasted with them. Uh, the Christian doesn't have to say, where can I find heroes? They just go in their Bibles. And they start at the top with Christ. Amen. And this is what uh, they were not doing. And this reference to Messiah is made clear in the New Testament. Peter, Romans, Mark, uh, I mean, it's, it's, even the Psalms. Behold, God speaking, I lay. And that behold is always dramatic music. That You can say that. Dun, dun, you know, here it comes. Something big. A big point is going to be made. I lay in Zion. A stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. So the true versus the false, metaphorically, pointing to the stability of God and his righteousness. A sure foundation, as opposed to the instability of man's government and and his sinful ways that the north and south had to suffer through. He says, whoever believes will not act hastily. Well, haste implies anxiety and confusion. Um... Unless you're playing sports, I guess. But uh, otherwise, in life, you, you, you don't want to make haste. Um, anyway, uh, it would be nice to name a kid haste and have them make a pie. And you could say, haste makes pies. Okay, it's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. And maybe you're saying, you know, even on Sundays, we're kind of just corny. <laughs> so... Uh, Here, when he says, whoever believes will not act hastily, he means they won't rush off to make allies without God. They will will go through life thinking about God. What would he want done? And to do that, they will seek him. As we read about the Macedonian Christians seeking God on giving money to the Jerusalem Jews. They didn't just say, well, there's a need. Let's just give something. They said, whoa, there's a need. That doesn't mean we're supposed to give. Let's think this through on our knees. And they did that. And Paul was so blown away that he told the Corinthians that. And the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to put that in print. That's my work in their lives. I could do it to them. I could do it to you. Uh, The Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in the Greek language, a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek known as the Septuagint, They use the word ashamed instead of hastily. I think that's interpretive. In other words, I think when the translators were writing it, it said, you know, will not act quickly. And said, well, the idea is they will not act shamefully. And it's not inaccurate. It just does not adhere to, would not adhere to the original Hebrew, which wasn't um, too much of a problem. Remember, Jesus grew up with at least two translated the Aramaic, the Hebrew, uh, and the Septuagint. And he quotes some of them. So 
It's not like, oh, this new thing, we've got all these translations. Which one can I trust? Well, you can trust them all, but it's still going to take work to dig down to the, the deeper uh, points of doctrine, uh, no matter what translation you have. Anyway, we, uh, the frantic of heart are not the victorious ones. Verse 17, also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the hiding place. And so he's, he's still going at them. He's saying, your little hiding place is like a sandcastle is what it is. And uh, that, you, can, you know they were steamed at this. Uh, the history says that Isaiah was martyred. There were probably a, 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 a lot of giving three cheers to Manasseh, if it's accurate, for their brutal, their savage killing of the prophet. The refuge of lies appears a second time. How many people take a residence there? Ram, well, I'm moving. Where are you moving to? A refuge of lies? Uh, are you going to find a safe place, a harbor of lies? We have the right to lie to ourselves. You just have no right to blaspheme God for it. They were lying to themselves. They were blaspheming God. But the thing is, God would hold them accountable. Verse 18, your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. So God is saying, Egypt's not going to help you, and nor are your uh, occultic gods, which are demons. They're not going to help you either. I'm going to put the kibosh on all of it. Verse 19 as often as it goes out, it will take you, for morning by morning it will pass over, and by day and by night it will be a terror just to understand the report. Well, the Assyrians were devastating Judah. When, when, when they got rolling, after they took out the north, they were making raids, and they took all the cities of, of Judah except Jerusalem. And the people had relatives there, and it was terrifying. Uh, we're next. They're going to kill us next. And we know the Assyrians, they skinned people alive. I mean, they just tortured people. They had ingenious ways of torturing people. They had special forces. <laughs> they would skin people and, and, and lay the skin over the walls you know, so everybody could see it. They were brutal by this time in history. They weren't that bad in Jonah's day, but they evolved or devolved. Anyway, verse 20. For the bed is too short to stretch out on and the covering so narrow that... One cannot wrap himself in it. And so, again, he's, he's a funny guy. He says, you bought a bed too short, and your blankets, on, they don't work. <laughs> so this is the language he's using. You, uh, you could do a whole sermon on this one. Uh, when it, they chose wrong when it came for comfort uh, and satisfaction. In fact, they're not going to get comfortable, and they're not going to find satisfaction. They're, they're, they make wrong choices. Uh, that's his point. You can't shop. <laughs> you always come back with 2% milk. If anybody here drinks 2% milk, the pastors will be up for prayer. And you, okay, sorry, don't joke about people's food. They don't laugh. Anyway, verse 21. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perism. Please don't comment to me about 2% milk after. <laughs> it's just a joke. I, <laughs> For the Lord will rise up, verse 21, as at Mount Perizim, he will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, he, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Well, the point is that David conquered uh, in the valley of Gibeon and at Mount Perizim, 
And God is saying, God was with his people to judge other people. But God is going to use other people to judge his people when they mess up. Just like I did with David, it's going to switch around because you're guilty. And this is an awesome work. It is beyond uh, you're changing this. And uh, it is an unusual act in that God doesn't want to do this, but you're forcing his hand. You have provoked him to do this to you. And yet he will, of course, have a remnant he will spare. He will not wipe out the children of Isaac. Verse Now, I purposely said Isaac because Abraham had children that were not Jews. Uh, Ishmael and the sons of Keturah. He had many other children. He had 12 sons after Sarah died. Uh, he had 12 sons by Keturah. Uh, but they're not Jews. They are children of Abraham, but not covenant children. And so I make the But it starts with your seed, Isaac, not counting Ishmael. Counting Isaac. Uh, then came Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. The children of Israel are linked directly to all three. Uh, verse 22, Now therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord Yahweh of hosts, a destruction de- determined even upon the whole earth. So God's reach is, etern- is, is throughout human history, he's saying, I'm giving you advice. Don't, don't continue this mockery of, you know, the Bible teachings are tedious. Peter says, knowing first that scoffers will come, in the last days, walking according to their own lust. Well, they've been doing it throughout. They did it in Noah's day. Verse 23. Listen to the teaching of God. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. And now he turns his attention to the faithful of the nation. He says God's judgments are methodical. They are perpetual. He's going to illustrate them through farming, uh, Verse 24, we'll just take that right to 28. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? Verse 25, when he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place, the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment, his God teaches him. Oh, I love that. His God teaches him. He still does this. Verse 27, For the black cumin is not thrashed with the threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin. For the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Verse 28, Bread must be ground. There's a flour to get the flour. Therefore, he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. So he's saying God knows what he's doing. He has this methodical approach to life. Things don't go on randomly. He's under his control. uh, And ultimately, there's a conclusion. There's a proper way for this that is not proper for that, and vice versa. And God's got it all. The husk of iniquity will be separated from the wheat, the sheep from the goats, we would say. And so a never-ending process in God's dealing with the farmer uh, is, is cyclical, but it does come to an end. Now, uh, he, he, so he's saying judgment is not random. 
The day of judgment is coming. In the book of... The word sickle appears 15 times in the Bible. 13 times. 13 times. Old and New Testament together. Seven of them are in one paragraph in the book of Revelation. I mean, it's pretty intense. That is emphatic. And I just want to take one... Instead of taking verses... Revelation 14, verses 14 through 19, I'll just take verse 19. Well, I'll take 18 too. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him who had a sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And that's what Isaiah is saying. God will reap the judgment. Uh, The man will reap the judgment and God will be the reaper. And man will be, of course, uh, that uh, vine of wrath. In verse 29, this also comes from Yahweh of hosts who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. So he has this outburst in the last verse. He always has his eyes on the Lord. His doctrine is always in order. This is Isaiah. In the midst of all this judgment, he attaches hope. He attaches righteousness. And he says that the Lord of hosts is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. You either take it or you leave it. And you've got to love this prophet. He's just not even warmed up yet. Let's pray. Our Father, um, so much, so much, we thank you for it, and we, we thank you for it very much. We pray you get us all home safely this evening, and we would ask these things in Jesus' name.